Well, now I get this started here. Um, I have already done half my introduction or most of it, and uh, I'm not going to go back to the first part, so it will not be there. <laughs> if anybody's listening to this, well, actually, how long did that take? Three minutes? Something like that? Okay. I did I did press start, but for some reason it didn't. Good that I looked at that. Anyway, must have been God's will that I looked at that again. No. Um, God's timing, though, is what it's all about. Um, because of the failure and the not so much patient Moses, even though God is going to use him, he's going to take this failure and train him for an additional 40 years. 40 years seems to be uh, quite the number in Moses. Uh, he has 40 years in three increments, I believe. Another 40 years, uh, 40 years in Egypt and 40 years in the desert and then 40 years uh, leading the nation of Israel. So that's uh, quite easy to uh, remember in our minds and to keep in, in thought. We observe uh, God using different approaches here, though. Uh, he used the education that Egypt had to offer for Moses. Then he uses the failure that he had in Egypt, takes that and humbles Moses now of all the education and the position that he had and uh, quite the um, notoriety that, uh, that he had. And uh, he's going to go out to Midian, which is a long way away, and um, God will prepare him there for faithful service. So he'll be 80 years old. God takes a lot of time to equip his people. It's not an overnight thing. And uh, if you wonder sometimes, why don't I, why don't I know that? And why, why am I not doing that? And well, it might be that um, we need to be more attentive to him, or it might be the fact that God says you're not ready yet. Uh, he has to train you a little bit more. So a lot of practical issues here. We'll first get to the text. We're in Exodus 2 now, in verse 11. And we'll take 11 through 14 and look at this failure of Moses. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Moses failed to deliver his people at this time. And we'll say this morning it's for two reasons. It might help us gather this up. He thought there would probably be very little cost in all this. In that he is so well known, so trained, he has um, quite the respect from the Egyptian people. And so therefore, he can uh, pretty well do what he wants. And because of that, he will uh, act upon this and he probably won't lose his position. Secondly, he does this without the guidance, without the direction of God. He has this prominent position. 
and he has this um, whole education. What else does a person need? He has all the money. He has everything he needs. And that's where God has to now take him and break him. He's building him up in a way of learning for the mind. And he's going to have to use some of those things later on. But at the same time now, God is going to have to humble him. And I'm sure there was a amount of pride that this great Moses had because of the situation that he was grown up in. So how about that cost that he had? You'd hate to just lose everything, wouldn't you? And I believe Moses in one sense might be ready to do that, but in another sense uh, there's that humanness that's involved. Uh, first 40 years he's been in the courts of Pharaoh. He was raised and trained like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. Now, I'm sure he even smelled like an Egyptian, whatever that means. I mean, he embraced the whole Egyptian life. That's what he was uh, grown up to, to be. He was nurtured by Pharaoh's daughter, possibly to be the next Pharaoh. And that's what Josephus, the historian, says. Uh, we don't have biblical facts on that, but it's a very good possible situation. Now, we know that he was raised totally different than the way he would have been raised by his Israelite parents, by the Jewish way, as far as knowledge of God is concerned. If you've been raised in a home where there have, has been biblical teaching, you are at an advantage. And if you've grown up in that situation, and Moses had some of that foundation although most of the, his life up to that time had been Egyptian, but it's, it's there. Um, it is an advantage to know the things of God. Uh, then the responsibility comes on now to be able to, to use that too. And uh, God will take different situations and, and make that happen. Uh, others uh, just have come to know the Lord in their adult life. And that wasn't by accident either. God uses all of that past life that you had and He can uh, He'll prepare you that way. That's the beauty of a sovereign God and Him uh, choosing us and bringing us into His kingdom even if we weren't saved for 40 years. To the Lord, He is not going to make that useless, is He? Even though to us, it was a waste of time and, and we hated that past life. But you know, God uses that. Well... In Acts 7, we'll turn over that parallel passage where you have Stephen preaching that great message of the history of Israel. And he gets into the section dealing with Moses. And if you're teaching the history of Israel, you have to bring Moses out, don't you? I mean, he's one of the shining stars here, I guess you could say. If we start in verse 20 says, at this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian.
For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled, became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Moses is educated. And he went to the great temple of the sun, it is called, which was the finest university in all the world. The Egyptians were very advanced. Has anybody ever watched the History Channel? Or tuned in on there once in a while? I know some shows on there you know, are far-fetched. Some of them go way beyond Scripture and they have some fantasy stories. And Sometimes they have some interesting facts and archaeology and such that they bring out. Well, there's probably been shows on there about the Egyptians. I don't know. I just brought that up. But, you know, you've heard uh, how the Egyptians were uh, so advanced, for instance, in, in astronomy, that at that time, when they lived, they knew the exact distance to the sun from the earth. That's pretty incredible. You know, they don't have the instruments that we would have. You would think, well, those people were, were way far behind us. Um, they knew also... Or at least they had a theory about the world not being flat, but probably round. Isn't that ingenious? Because we know all the way through, um, basically through history, uh, you know, up through the Dark Ages, that most people, I mean just about everybody, thought the world was flat. But the Egyptians actually thought that it was round. And I believe they were right. <laughs> We know that. They knew chemistry very well. They were so advanced in embalming the dead. And you know about the stories of that and all the pharaohs that have, you know, that have been discovered and they, that have been embalmed. There is no kind of science today that equals the embalming process that they had to keep these for hundreds of thousands of years. Hundreds or thousands of years, right? Uh, we don't have any process like that. The colors that they used were much brighter than anything that we have in our paints. And there have been discoveries where they have come up with paint that has survived 3,000 years or so. And it's brighter than some of the paints that we have today. I go out and uh, I paint my house and it was like three years later and it needed to be painted again. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, the paint just fades. You have to keep painting. But somehow they devised that way. Our paint companies would love to know it. Maybe they wouldn't love to know that because it put them out of business. Or maybe that paint would be tremendously expensive. <laughs> But anyway, that's the kind of advancement they had. Uh, they had a great knowledge of mathematics. Moses was learned in all this wisdom. He would have known something about medicine. He would have known philosophy. He would have known law. By the way, the law is going to be given to him by God. Uh, he will learn 
some things about military leadership. Uh, Josephus reports that he was like a captain or a general of an army that uh, led in some battles. That's historically presented. We don't really have uh, real factual evidence, no biblical evidence on that. I'm just saying that that's a possibility that he was a leader uh, in the army and, and very successful. Uh, he also would have known probably some things about sculpture, would have known some things about music. This uh, is a well-endowed person. Uh, we know that uh, here in Acts 7, it says that he was uh, had all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So, um, quite the intelligence that Moses has. I think he had to study hard. I think he had respect from the Egyptian civilization. And many people knew of his powerful influence so he was wise in all the worldly matters and he was very competent as a leader. And you would think, okay, now's the time. Now's the time that God is going to use him to march the Israelites right on out of Egypt. No, it's not time yet. <laughs> Four more decades? you got to be kidding me. Successful he was. As far as the world is concerned, this guy has it made. Has all the advantages. And that's what people shoot for in the world. They want to get to the point where Moses was at. And they're not happy till they get there. But is that the answer? Is that what life is about? Well, Moses is about to discover something. <laughs> and pretty rudely, as a matter of fact, his life is going to change. It had already been put in Moses' heart that he is going to be the one to lead the Israelites. Doesn't know exactly how he's going to do it, but it's starting to come to him that this is the time to do it. We're going to do it now. And the first opportunity that I get, uh, it might have to be rebellion. I don't know what it is. I'll get the Israelites on my side, show them that I'm with them, and I'm going to take them out. We're going out of here. We're going to, we're going, I'm going to lead them. So in verse 11, it says he... Uh, it was put into his heart to go out with his people. So the Israelites have been in bondage and they're going to continue to stay in bondage. And you'd think God would have compassion on these Israelites. Why doesn't he do it now? They've been there long enough. Well, he knows he's a Hebrew in some way. Maybe he knew from the very outset when he was a young, uh, young man. I tend to think that he knew all along. Some say he maybe he didn't know, but I, I definitely think he does. I think he was raised up and trained in a lot of the things that God uh, would have him to use later on, knowing the, the Hebrew thought. In Hebrews 11, where you have the Hall of Faith, verse 24 through 26, Moses will be in that section. It says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now, when this was, I can't tell you for sure, and it might be both times. It might be before the desert, and it definitely is after the desert. Uh, I tend to think that he's thinking along the right ways in some ways of leading the people out. 
I'm not uh, putting all negatives on Moses at this time because of the failure, um, that being the murder that he does. Um, but I, I definitely think that he was willing to put his life on the line. Uh, later on, he sure had to be as he had been broken. Uh, maybe the cost at this time is a little too much for him in the way that uh, he would have. I don't know. It doesn't really say here, but at some time he very very much made a courageous decision to be in aid of these Israelites, even if it meant his noble position. For one thing, he has contempt for the pleasures of the Egyptian court. That's what it says here in Hebrews. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The passing pleasures of sin. What's going on in the Egyptian court? Well, the passing pleasures of sin. He knew the lifestyle. He had been a part of it. And it did not equate with the God of the Israelites. The pleasures, the very treasures of Egypt were at his disposal. And they just faded from Moses' thoughts. And as he thought more about his people, he didn't really care about the treasures that Egypt had. There was gross idolatry, gross immorality that was practiced. It surrounded him every step that he took. You know, we can kind of identify with that because I think we have gross immorality and idolatry and all of that surrounding us, don't we? Constantly. And we are people of uh, means. We all have good means, I, I think, as far as uh, living the life that we have. I think it's rather comfortable how we live. I would say it's probably just as comfortable or more comfortable than even what Moses had. So we can identify in that way. Moses, I think, was probably forced to accommodate himself to the surroundings that he had for those many years. I don't know how much he was in sin. It doesn't really say. We know that he uh, definitely passes that off and he chose to suffer the affliction and how he grew up. We don't have that information. But we know it was around him. We know the temptations were there. In some ways, I'm sure, whether it be small things or big things, he definitely had to accommodate himself to live in that lifestyle underneath these parents that he was being raised by in his teen years and 20s and such. Did he have concern for his Jewish brothers? I'm sure that developed. And it developed stronger and stronger in his heart and his mind. He was sure that God was going to use him and to use him to deliver the people, and it's got to be any time now. This has got to be it. He's feeling it. And so that's where we're at as we come to verse 12 through 14 in our Exodus chapter 2. He knows God's will. His problem is, is that he didn't seek the timing of God and I don't think he's really seeking God's will. Overall, I believe he's wanting God's will to happen. But he wants it to happen now. It's not being carried out on his schedule. So all the training in Egypt that he had did not prepare him to deliver the Israelites. He's not ready. 
And he was probably the most trained person in all of the empire to do that. He probably become very anxious, probably very impatient. Time to get it started. He suddenly saw the Hebrew being beaten to a pulp by the Egyptian. He says, okay, that's enough. And so his heart goes out to the Israelite. You can imagine how that would be, especially if he's one of your own, really. Whatever the case may be, and he comes to the defense, but we know that also there is murder involved. And it's thought out, too. What Moses is going to do is trust in his ability. He's going to trust in his strengths, all of his accomplishments. His human ability is going to come into play here. And that's what gets him into trouble. He was confident in his effort. And that's the problem with mankind. We have confidence in our flesh. You remember Paul? He says, I have no confidence in the flesh. And of course, he was a Hebrew, Hebrew and Israelite. He was a Pharisee. And he's a tribe of Benjamin. Look at all the advantages he had. And he counted that as nothing. And that's what Moses is going to have to learn. All that training is really nothing. Sure, God's going to use it, but right now that's not going to help in doing what God has in mind. So the murder of the Egyptian comes up here. Moses just acts according to plan, his plan. Sees the opportunity, seizes that, makes his move. It was thought out in what he was going to do. <laughs> and as <laughs> I heard you guys laughing over okay. <laughs> as he was thinking out this, he looked to the left. And he looked to the right. I've got to make sure. Is this my right? <laughs> looks to the left. Looks to the right. He doesn't look up. He doesn't seek God out in this, does he? He seeks out his own thinking. He says, nobody's looking. He's planning this out, folks. This is not just on a whim. You know, he could have said, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to. That is murder. I can't murder him. You know, so he, he does his thing. He, he doesn't fly off the handle here. The cruel taskmaster task needed to be punished. He's beating the slave. Moses says, I have an opportunity. I can do this. Look at, look at my position. And I'll just let it not be known. So anyway, it still is not right for, mur- uh, for murder to happen. The law hasn't even been given yet. But we know that that law is already built into mankind. You don't murder people. And Moses knew that, but he still did it. And when one acts in the flesh, even with the intent of spiritual things, it's invariable that they will have to cover up something. And we see here in Exodus 2 that it says that he buried him in the sand. And, of course, that's basically what they had there, uh, sand, right? Uh, He was stuck with a corpse and a shallow grave. And that's what he did. He covers up. And um, we have anger 
involved with Moses. And we can say, yeah, but it was a righteous anger. Uh, there was uh, what he was doing there, that, that, uh, what was happening to the, the slave. But Moses puts on his anger in a display that is one of the worst things that we can do. Now, this anger is actually, in one sense, a personality trait that Moses has been given by God. He has an anger. It would be called a righteous anger because of what was happening. Moses, throughout the time in the wilderness, has a righteous anger. And you'll know some of those times that he did. When, whenever he came down the mountain and he had the Ten Commandments, you know what he did when he saw the idolatry that was happening at the bottom of the mountain. His people that he was leading were into gross immorality. And the idolatry that they had, really. And so what did he do? He threw what God had given to him down to the ground and broke them. We know that he struck the rock twice when God told him to do it once. And we know that Moses had an anger. But God takes personalities, puts them in there, and then he starts working on that personality as time goes on. That personality can be used for the very glory of God. But God has to whittle that extra junk off, doesn't he? He has to shave it off. Sometimes he has to go in there with a chisel and start chunking it out. Sometimes I think he has to take some dynamite and blow it out. You know what I'm talking about? All Christians are going to have that happen, though. You know, he's burning off the dross of this fine gold that he's put there. So, so he uses a personality for his will. God has to cleanse these traits. Moses definitely stood for justice, didn't he? And that's a good thing. And his righteous anger is used. Godly characteristics, but his anger was displaced at this time. He did what was wrong. Now, it's interesting. The other party comes into play, and it's the Israelites. And you have two of them that are kind of representing what the rest of the nation is about. Those two men, fighting, they were Israelites. They proved the Israelites weren't any better than the, the Egyptian who was there beating them because they're there beating themselves. And so goes the depravity of man. It just shows how man is. And there they are on the same side, same nation, should be fighting for themselves and they're fighting against themselves. Moses probably hoped for an organized rebellion of some kind Moses is a type of Christ. All throughout the book of Exodus, we're going to see Moses as a type of Christ. Now, some places he's going to fail the type of Christ. But in other instances, we can kind of get an idea that later on this is actually pointing to the ultimate um, prophet, priest, and king. And um, what happens is that these Israelites did not receive Moses. And that's what happened to Jesus whenever he was here on the earth. He came to his own, his own, there we go, they received him not. They did not receive him as Moses was rejected, so Christ would be rejected by his own. And we know that um, as we go through here, we'll always point that out. Even in, in our message throughout the rest of this time period, we'll start pointing some of those out as God uses him here. So we, we see Christ in the book of Exodus. 
very clearly, really. It looks hidden at first, and then you start peeling back uh, some of the glory of God, and you get to see that, that glimpse of, of Him there. Uh, not peeling back the glory, but I guess you peel back the, uh, the veil. The murder becomes known. Perhaps the Pharaoh knew about Moses also. If you turn back to Exodus, or no, 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 Acts. Acts 7. Think verse 25. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. He already supposed that uh, because he did what he did, that ooh, the Israelites would get behind him and couldn't wait and say, you're our leader, let's go, take us. But they didn't understand. And the next day appeared to two of them as they were fighting, tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So, um, Moses is going to have to tuck up his royal robes and run like a scared coyote in the desert. He's going to have to get out of there. Because it says he, he fears the Pharaoh. Maybe you have to question here, why would Pharaoh want to kill his son? One in the royal court. Why would he kill him? Because all he did was he killed an Egyptian, but he was a taskmaster. Maybe there was something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. Uh, could it be that he was well aware? He knew all about Moses' Uh, being a Hebrew and from from his birth or later on, uh, that the the murder itself really showed his a national allegiance, who he was really wanting to be identified with. Maybe this had been stewing up for uh, a little while. Whatever the reason was, Moses has real good reason to flee from Egypt and go to Midian. His life is in danger. He's not ready, is he? So he fails to lead the Jews. And I think it has to devastate him because he's had this on his mind for quite some time. God has put it into his mind to do that. But not at this time. So he has to learn that deliverance is going to come from God's hand and not his. And he thought all along, look at me. I'm the one that can do this. So let's sum up this first part. We've gone through part one. We say that Moses failed to deliver the children of Israel. He failed because he thought he could deliver them with not too much cost. Maybe not any cost at all. The second reason is that he took action without the strength, without the guidance of God. God didn't tell him to do that murder. God didn't tell him to do what he did. God is going to use this. But this is uh, strictly his own plan. So this defeat is what God uses as an important plan important part of him preparing Moses. Isn't that incredible? 
how God can take even sin and work it out for good. I think that sounds like Romans 8, doesn't it? God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The timing is what the difference is. Psalm 119.71 Psalm 119, the longest psalm. In fact, the longest chapter in all the Bible. says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn. You guys like that one? It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn. That's how we can know who God is. That's one of the instruments that He uses to make us know Him. Now, the best way to know Him is through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And we read and we study this situation here with Moses. And there will be coming a time in our life when we get into something that would be similar to this. And we might stumble. And God uses it. Now that's called experience. When we don't draw upon the Word of God and we put our own thoughts into play, God will teach us like He taught Moses. And even if we are obedient in His timing and being very patient, He still can afflict us. It doesn't mean, hey, if I do everything that He says, then I won't ever have to go through affliction. I wish I wished it was like that. Many times I have thought that. Maybe I can escape all the suffering and affliction if I just be obedient to Him. Hmm. Do you ever see that happen to anybody in Scripture? How about Daniel? I don't see any sin in Daniel's life. Did he have affliction? <laughs> yeah, sure did. But look what God did with it, right? So it, it, we're guaranteed that. Sure as the sparks fly up. All right, that's the first part, failure. We're in two parts today. You know, the perfect message has many parts, usually three. Well, we have only two today. We broke the rule. We could have broken it into three, but we want to be rebellious here like Moses and do two. We go from failure to humility now. Moses is going to have to be humbled. And um, so we will come into verse 15 of Exodus 2. And we'll read there. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, Well, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, Where is he? Why is it you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. 
Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. They cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Four parts there at the end, what God did. But we go back now to Moses. Humility, we look at part A there, fugitive. He becomes a fugitive. He's on the run. He goes to a different land, a foreign land. This is not like 10, 15 miles away or 100 miles away. We're talking much further, way away from Egypt. He is on the run. He is known. He's by no, known by all the Egyptians. And he would probably be very easy to detect if he stayed somewhere out there in Egypt away from, I think, the city of Ramesses where he was at or something like that. Uh, he better get way away. He better get to a place where there's water. He has to go through uh, a desert. Uh, where's he going to go? Well, he goes to Midian. That's going to be his home for the next 40 years. Can you imagine that? Out of one thing that he did wrong, he is going to go away for 40 years. Have you ever been away from anybody, your loved ones, for 40 years? <laughs> Probably not. Maybe, maybe so. But he's going to be prepared to be a deliverer. And this is where he's going to learn the most. Now to him, this probably has to seem like a dead end. You come from the palace, the best place to live in all the world, and you go out to a place where there is almost nothing. I mean, from the top to the bottom in a moment. He's on the run. He's an alien in a strange land. He doesn't really know anybody there. And if you look in Genesis 25-2, we're given a hint here of the people that he goes to. You want to know who these people are? Well, in Genesis 25, we have Abraham. Abraham took a wife. Again, it's not Sarah. She has um, died. Now, and uh, her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, and for my own purpose, I'm going to stop right here. Because it gets harder. Medan. Medan. M-E-D-A-N. Does that sound familiar? Median. He's going to the country of Median. Medan, the country of Medan. Who are these people? Well, they're descendants of Abraham. Moses is a descendant of Abraham. He's related to these people. Distant. It's been, let's say, 500 years since Abraham. Maybe not quite that long, but a um, few hundred years. But they're relatives of the Jews. That's really what they are. So they're, they're out there. I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to meet a priest in a moment. Okay, does that, that give away? We'll come back to that. Now, what's going on here? He's out in the desert, or in a desert area. He's kind of on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba. If you have maps in the back of your Bible, uh, it'll, uh, you'll, you'll see the Gulf of Aqaba. It's uh, very much east of where Egypt is at and kind of down south a little bit of that. Um, there is water around that area. It uh, is a an arid place, but at the same time, uh, you can live there. 
It's going to live there 40 years. If you live in a place 40 years, you think you're going to get to know the area, get to know the land a little bit. It's going to be a shepherd. You're going to take your sheep out for pretty good distances to try to find some vegetation to live off of. I think Moses is going to get to know this land very well. He's going to be coming into this land and live there another 40 years. He's going to go get his people, bring them out there, and he's going to know this place probably like the back of his hand. I think that helps. He's going to know very well. He's going to guide his people there. So it's good to know the place where you're going to. He's going to settle in Midia here from verses 16 through 22. Now God uses this time period of 40 years for a lot of reasons. That's one of them. One is that Moses is going to find a wife there. He's not going to have an Egyptian wife here at this time. He's going to have a wife who actually is related to the Jews in some form. He's going to have two sons bore to them. One of them is named in our passage. So the subsection that we're dealing with now shows how Moses got his wife. And again, it's not by accident. And again, it has to deal with a well, sitting by a well and help doing the water. Has that sounded familiar? If you'll remember, go back to Abraham who winds up having Isaac. And of course, we have the servant who goes to a well and meets a girl who happens to be, who is going to be Isaac's wife. God does a lot of things sometimes that are very familiar. Whenever he has a wife planned out for somebody, it's good to uh, see how God works that out. It's just not by accident, is it? So Moses is going to care for seven daughters of this priest. Seven daughters. And he's a priest. We're back in our Exodus section. It says in verse 16, Now the priest of Midian, seven daughters. Now Moses is going to become a protector. And here's another type of Christ. He is a protector. He protects these young girl shepherds. And if you go back into history, and I'm not going to press this, but these are pretty young. And the reason I say that, the culture of that time usually would have the girls be the shepherds in this part of the country. And they would do that job until about the age of puberty. 13, 14, somewhere in that area. So they were pretty young. It could be a little bit older, but it basically would be around that age. That's how. It's not like they're 19 or 20 or in their 20s or 30s. They're very young. So that gives us an idea probably of what's happening here. Moses is going to become a servant here in a foreign land. Now, he comes from the palace and now he is among Midianites who they probably would have looked down upon. And you have these girls who are shepherds and I'm sure shepherds are looked down upon. And Moses is going to help them out. Some shepherds come by and what they do is they drive away the flock. From these young girls. Now what would you be thinking? Wouldn't that make you kind of mad? Well I'm sure it did with most. Remember he has a righteous anger. He's going to use it for good this time. Girls are trying to water. Just something simply that they're supposed to do. 
And it usually takes some time to happen. Well, Moses is there. He drives the shepherds away and then takes and waters the sheep. Does this in a a quick amount of time. And the girls wind up taking the sheep back home and their father wonders why they're back so quick. How, How were they able to do that? Moses wasn't with them. That's interesting. Why do they call him an Egyptian? Did you notice that? The, the, the girls are saying, well, they, in verse 19, they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds. Well, he probably still has the clothes on of an Egyptian. Now, this quite a few hours, quite some time has passed by. Days here have gone by in his travel. And maybe he doesn't look as clean as he did when he walked out of the palace earlier. But he probably still has the clothes on. He had to get out of there probably in a, in a quick amount of time. And he must have stuck out like a sore thumb amongst these people. He's obvious. Well, he's an Egyptian. An Egyptian came along. Well, he was raised up as an Egyptian. He's not really an Egyptian by blood, is he? Well, here's, here's where the, the father comes into play. When they came to Reuel, their father, and this time it says Reuel, and verse 16 said he was a priest. So we know that's really his position. And there we get a name. He says, how is it you have come so soon today? He said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. He did all that. Well, boy, Reuel, their father, the priest, is just excited about this. And he says, well, why isn't he along with you? Go get him. Now, this is great because God has this planned out. Where is Moses going to go once he gets out there? Is he going to go out there and live by himself for 40 years? He doesn't know it's going to be 40 years. For all he knows, it could be a year, two years, a couple of months. Maybe he'll go back. Maybe he'll forget about who he is after a few. I don't know. I don't know what's going through his mind. I don't know if he knows what's going through his mind. He has to get out of there, and he did. And uh, he meets this Raul. Now, Raul, and you'll notice E-L at the end of that. That's a Hebrew-type word. It means friend of God. You see the E-L-L? A friend of God. This priest. I like that. There's another name that he has. So he's a priest. He's Raul. We don't usually know him by Raul. We know him by another name. And if we turn to Exodus 18, later on, he is called that name. In verse 12. Then Jethro... Moses' father-in-law. Remember, he marries Zipporah, which is a daughter of Jethro. Took a burnt offering, other sacrifices to offer to God. There's the priest. Uh, some say that Jethro means priest. So that's his title, possibly. And Reuel is his name. His office is priest. So Jethro, not only is another name, but uh, it's a title. And being a median, he probably knew the true God. He's a priest for God. Incredible. This is before the priestly system is even set up. Who's the one that sets that up? Moses does later on in the wilderness. We haven't even come to that. That's later on in Exodus. Leviticus. 
All of those things happen later. But God is already using priests. Matter of fact, we know at the time of Abraham, there was one who was a priest in what we know as Jerusalem. Okay, Moses, while he was in Egypt, was probably in line to marry a Cleopatra-type beauty of Egypt. Someone of the favor of the royalty. That's who I'm sure that his mother had planned for, had this all planned out. And instead, he's going to get married to a shepherdess. We go from one end of the spectrum, folks, to the other end. Because people look down upon shepherds. And she's a shepherdess. And I think that's fascinating because Moses is going to be a shepherd of sheep. Real sheep. That's another type of Christ. Because Christ was a shepherd. He is the good shepherd, isn't he? So another element of the type of Christ is that Moses was a shepherd. Jesus was a shepherd of his people. Moses learns to be a shepherd by taking on those stubborn sheep <laughs> that just wander off. Yeah. That's what he's going to do out there for 40 years. He's going to learn that from God. You know, David, the greatest king they had, did the same thing as a young man. Boy, he learned a lot. Matter of fact, he wrote a lot of psalms during that time, didn't he, while he was out there doing that. And we sing those psalms, read those psalms today. So all those years as being in Egypt, humanly, I, I think we could say we're wasted as he's out there trying to keep sheep alive in a semi-arid desert. <laughs> sheep out on a semi-arid desert. Married to a foreign woman. And here's another type of Christ. She's almost like a Gentile, in a sense. The Zipporah is uh, related to Jews, but kind of like a Gentile. She wasn't in with the other ones. They were in captivity. So it takes, if we can say liberty, a Gentile bride. And... That's what Christ did. His own received him not. Then he goes out to the rest of the world. And we see Jesus being the anti-type. Moses being the type. He has a son. Moses does. His name is Gershom. That means to drive out. It meant a sojourner in a foreign land. And so it says here in the text, a stranger in a foreign land. And as he had this son that he raised up, it was always a reminder to him about his banishment to this place. A stranger, an alien in a foreign land. Fascinating, isn't it? All these little details just jump out at you as, as you see this being uh, developed. God is teaching him some great lessons. Well, we're at the last section in part C there. Continued bondage of the Israelites. Now we go away from Moses. We'll next see him in chapter 3. What's happening back in Egypt? Well, there's a new Pharaoh. 
because the other one dies. It says in 23, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of, king of Egypt died. We don't get much on the 40 years that Moses is out there. He's married and has a couple of sons. He's a shepherd. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Watch this. So God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Now, did God forget about the children of Israel all this time? Oh, wow, it's been a couple hundred years here. I've I got to take care of them. Here, I've been fooling around with Moses. I've got to get this thing together. Is he in control or not? I said, boy, that's, that's terrible. That's not the God I want. Him out there. He, he gave them a slavery and a bond. Yeah, he sure did. He, he actually is the one who controlled that slavery and bondage. And it's terrible. It's horrible, isn't it? Humanly. But either God's in control or he's not. If he's not, we're in trouble. Is this beyond him? No, I think it's one of the best pictures of what salvation is. That's why the Exodus, the Passover, all of that is one of the greatest stories of redemption that one could ever see. I mean, the picture is so detailed for us. We were in bondage spiritually. We didn't feel the same kind of physical bondage then, but we were in bondage spiritually. And it took some outside, not force, but being who delivered us out by His blood. And we know that teaching the Passover, the time you get to chapter 12, well, that's a beautiful thing. And tabernacle. My goodness, the redemption story is, you could just have the book of Exodus and have all you need for what salvation is about. If you had nothing else, this book is just tremendous. And uh, so, hey, if you are His and He owns you and He's chosen you, He is taking care of you and he knows exactly what's going through. As a matter of fact, the little thing that you might be going through, he knows all about it. As a matter of fact, ultimately, he designed it and uses that. Well, Israelites are about worn out. Pharaoh dies and they go, oh good, maybe the political change will make things better. They're going around, I'm sure they're going around, change. Change. Who knows? They might have had signs upon their own. Change. We want change. <laughs> change didn't happen. They had a new Pharaoh, but it didn't get any better. Uh, so the de- decreased oppression, which they thought might happen, didn't happen. And now, they are in despair at their lowest. This is at the lowest level that the nation of Israel had gotten at that time. And I'm sure there were some crying out to God, but as a nation, they hadn't been crying out to God, not wholeheartedly. They just would maybe send up a little prayer. But real, true prayer, seeking God, they hadn't done as a nation. And it says the children of Israel, verse 23, groaned because of their bondage. It had gotten so terrible. They cried out. And their cry came up to God. It's not that He didn't hear them before. But now they're in tune with His will. And He says, yep, it's ready. 
this is a turning point. When they're at their lowest, when they're at their despair, that is the best thing that happened to the nation of Israel. Are you seeing where we're at? You know what? When Jesus came preaching that Sermon on the Mount, He started doing the blessed R's. And what was the first one? Blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit. Because they saw their bondage. They're poor. They have nothing. They can't offer God anything. Blessed are the ones who mourn. That is why you're blessed. When you see how wretched you are and you need a Savior because you can't do anything. There's no hope anywhere. Only Him. That's, that's where they've gotten. And that's why they were blessed at this time as you were blessed when you got to a despair and cried out to God and said, I need a Savior. When that happened, that's when things turned. Can you identify with it? They had a dire need, didn't they? They turned to God. They said, He's our only hope. And when they remembered God, humanly, we can say that they discovered God always remembered them. They forgot Him. Going back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, and even when they went into Egypt for the first few years, but then slavery happened, they forgot. God has a response. The last two verses. Four things here. You can't miss it. You could outline verse 24 and 25 in four parts. God, right here, He is sensitive to human need when people see their need, when they see that He's their only hope. That is going to take the work of the Holy Spirit because you're so dead spiritually you can't respond to Him until He comes in and regenerates you. The moment you are regenerated, you respond, God then brings on His saving plan. Here's where it starts. It says in 24, God heard their groaning. He heard them. God hears. He heard the cry. And then it says, He remembered His covenant. Now, that is put in a way that's brought humanly. We know that God doesn't forget. God cannot forget. He knew all along what was going on. But putting it out in a way that humans can understand, a baby talk for us, He remembers. And then it said He looked upon the children of Israel. Getting down deep into this sense that He is making this known that He is there and He then acknowledges them. Now their prayers are going there. Something starts happening. They get ready for a deliverer as they prayed, they cried out to Him. What's the lesson that we can take home? And out of this whole thing, have you guys had any trouble trying to figure out what application is in this text? This is not something that just happened thousands of years ago. 3,500 years ago. This didn't just happen. It's not just a little story. But uh, this is something for us to learn from. Moses had to learn humility before he'd be the great leader of Israel. It took quite some time. He lived a lowly position out there in Midian. 
he could identify with the Israelites hundreds of miles away from him where he had been. The Moses of chapter 2 that we have just read in this section here has to precede the Moses of the Red Sea crossing. That great miracle, God had to do these things and humble him down before he would do a great thing for him. His failure is absolutely something God used to prepare him. Can there be something good about human failure? Yeah. What are humans? Humans are that. They are not God. They are not perfect. Humans fail. All of us have failed and we will fail. We'll stumble. But what do we do with that? We let the Spirit of God work on us, learn from that, learn humility, and just trust in Him. His failure is what God used. And that's what He's using in our lives. No, we don't want to go around failing all the time. Oh, it's just a failure there. Hey, it's okay, you know. Um, we don't we don't like to sin. That's what failure is. It's I mean it can it's falling short of God's glory in that sense. Now there are failures that happen that aren't necessarily sins. Certain things happen, and so, you know, humans can see it as failure. God just sees it as another event in your life that uh, He's using to train you. We too have to be broken before God is going to use us. Before we can be built up again, He wants to make us recognize that we are broken people. He picks up the pieces. He puts it together. All His grace. It's all for His glory. Let's pray. Father, You are the great God. You are tremendous. And as we see the procedure that You use to teach us lessons here, as You taught Moses, that You are still the same God as you were back thousands of years ago. And you are using those same tendencies, the same plan on us in different ways, different timings, but you are that same kind of God. And you want us to be able to represent you in a glorious way. Thank you for the story of Moses as we proceed in this great book of Exodus. And may... We glorify you as we study your precious word. And as we go out of here, may we put it into our lives so that people can see the very Lord who is in our lives. In the very name of your Son, Amen.